Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome back to the Bash Mania podcast. Exciting show on deck today. It's three-time NCAA champ and three-time world champ, one of the greatest American wrestlers of all time, Hops in the podcast to share some stories, share some insight. Yes, I'm talking about Lee Kemp. Today's show is brought to you by our friends at Attack, the app we all need. Attack is an AI strength and conditioning coach, a nutritionist, a mentality mentor, all in one, all in your pocket. Your age, your goals, your program. We are all here to level up. And shout out Attack, signing bash athlete Peyton Prusin, as a brand ambassador. Great move, in my opinion. If you don't know, Attack is an app which lets you both log your workouts. So if you hop on the Peloton bike like I do, there's a spot in the app where you can log that. And it also gives you workouts to Attack. They'll help you with strength, nutrition, endurance, mentality, flexibility, all that good stuff that you need to compete at a higher level, even if that competing is with yourself. For a guy like me, as I want to become healthier, my mid-30s, I need to stay in shape. This app is for me. This app is for you. So download Attack in the Apple App Store today. It's Bashomania! Let me tell you something, brother. He gave us everything he had in him tonight. What you gonna do when Bashomania runs wild? Oh, it's gonna be a good one. And business just picked up here on the podcast. Oh, yeah. We are back. Bashmania 146. Good, good guest today, in my opinion. Lee Kemp, how are you, man? I'm doing fantastic. I appreciate you having me on. Well, I don't know if you remember, but I sponsored the event in 2015 at Worlds that sponsored the 1980 Olympic team or that honored it. And it's funny because my logo, this logo, is behind you in your profile picture. Still, that's I'm true. <laughs> that's true. That's you know what? That's true. I I was showing my wife yesterday. She was laughing. She's like, "Oh my gosh, it is. There's your logo." <laughs> you, you know, and I took some pictures with you too during that. Event. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. still got some, so I might put those out to to put with this. But I'm excited to have you on. You know, meeting you back a couple of years ago, I thought you're obviously one of the greatest wrestlers in American history. But once I watched this documentary they put out a year or two ago, man, there's so many things there to pull from. And I think there's a good opportunity to, you know, I, I want to bring value and entertainment to people listening. So I think your story does a lot of that. We'll dive in to some of it. But before we talk your story too, real quick, Let's start with your son, Adam Kemp, oh. wrestling at Cal Poly this weekend. Looked pretty dang good. What was your what was your thoughts on it? Well, I, I whenever I talk about my son, Adam, I've got to back up to some of the rougher times. And since you mentioned you watched a documentary, uh, I always start by saying uh, that was the last thing that I thought I ever would have the opportunity to do was to first yeah. just be around my kids, let alone. Yeah 
have a relationship and be a father and all that kind of stuff. Cause you know, I, I went through what probably, and again, you know, a lot of people have hard times. I'm not trying to make mine out to be worse than anyone else's, but sure. you know, I was about five years. I didn't have much in, interaction with my children and my, uh, my, my daughter who was 16, uh, my older son, 17, he chose not to come live with me, but my daughter that was 16 and Adam who was 10 at the time chose to come live with me in the year 2010. Adam was an 80 pound guy weakling you know just <laughs> and so he was little he didn't grow he was little at, at at 10 years old he was like up to my chest he was just little and skinny and i mean healthy you know i was yeah. happy to have my but i got him into wrestling just so he'd get a little tougher because i thought he was a little soft never ever dreaming he would be an illinois state place winner which is tough at 160 anyway, long story short that's just give a little bit of a preamble yeah. uh I, I, as you saw in the documentary, I, I bribed him to go out for wrestling. I paid him. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, I want him to wrestle so badly. I, I offered to pay him to wrestle and he's, he did. And again, he, he went from like one, like one wrestling at 125 as a sophomore, did not qualify for state. That was his first year of varsity to the next year, ballooning up to 157. I mean, not ballooning up, but muscular, you know, just yeah. got muscular at 157 and he went to state that year and then the senior he took uh fifth yep. at 160 at in, in the large schools and you know anyway so um he was training at uh izzy style which you probably know izzy martinez yep. he's a, a, a friend of mine and a wrestling colleague and he big, was big izzy fans here yes <laughs> yeah he i owe a lot to him because he in that room my son got tough and uh, i stayed out of the room because i could tell my son needed to have someone coach him. And uh, again, I was just dad. And plus, uh, but Izzy did an awesome job grooming him, getting him around the best wrestlers in the country, you know, like Will Lewan at the time, you know, his room was filled with hammers. So my son got good enough to where his senior year, he ended up uh, taking fifth. Izzy's wrestler won the state tournament um, uh, at that, that weight class, but my son got to train with him in the room. Yeah. So he was with, you know, guys who ended up, he saw being, state champions, things like that. So, uh, so anyway, I have to say that to get to where I'm, what I'm going to say now uh, <laughs> sure. in, in that room, um, coaches would come like Tom brands would be in, in the, is he, you know, legally, you know, just going to the club, watching yeah. wrestlers, not talking to any wrestlers, just watching, um, you know, um, other coaches would be in, in the room as well. So uh, uh, Troy Steiner, uh, also came in the room and he was, he was a second year coach at Fresno state. So, uh, is he kind of served my son up to the coaches that will come and Troy took a chance on him. And, uh, so, uh, my son and I were, I was a single dad with him. My daughter had already gone to college by then. So we, I, <laughs> it felt like the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, I <laughs> got rid of everything. I got a trailer, put everything I owned in it, which wasn't much. And we drove from Illinois to California. And That's I amazing. had decided I was just going to live in California. I was going to figure out what I was going to do. I didn't really have a job or anything. I just just went out there. And and then one door closes, you know, Fresno State drops a program. We're thinking, oh, man, this is horrible. And then Cal Poly picks him up. OK, so we're thinking, oh, this is great. And now <laughs> and now uh, 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 the, the wrestler from from. Uh, Wisconsin, uh, who, you know, who, you know, who's tough as nails, who's from California, 
uh, Evan Wick, you know, what I'm yeah. talking about, right? So he, yeah. he transfers in his last year at Wisconsin to yeah. Cal Poly and my son's weight. We're thinking, oh, geez, that's bad. But <laughs> right. then, and then, so I'm thinking at first, and even John Sreda said, well, at least not the end of the world. You know, your son sits out for a year, gains that experience wrestling, you know, underneath uh, Evan. And uh, then he's got two years left because of COVID. He had the COVID yeah. retro year. But then John Sreda is kind of in his wisdom. He encouraged uh, Bernie Truex to go up to 184, which left because he was an All-American the previous yeah. year, 174. He went up. Adam slots right in at 174. And uh, of course, Edmund's doing his thing in 165. So it's so I'm a little wordy, but that's kind of how it all kind of worked out. So my son's got some great training partners. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the best there. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned when you sit back because your dad, I'm curious on that balance because I feel like you hear about coaches and, and parents and kind of knowing their their boundaries. But with you, it's like you're one of the greatest in the world. Does your son come to you like, dad, show me this? Do you try to do you try to sit out? Like, what's that dynamic like? I'm still dad. I mean, yeah. I'm still dad. And I, I hear that from every other wrestler uh, that I know that that wrestled, you know, whether it's uh, myself, Kenny Mundy or or uh, Tom Ryan or John Smith or yeah. whatever. You know, you just you're at the end of the day, you're just dad, really. And uh, part of the problem with that is you kind of start taking wrestling home. So your yep. son goes to practice and now you're at home and you're trying to show him something. So it just be too much. Fortunately, I recognize that. And I just sort of step back. And yep. at the end of the day, I just realized that it's, it's his life. It's his career. Uh, of course I want him to do well, but you know, I, you know, he's not me. Yep. I, I'm just thankful that he did get the bug finally. And, and he told me, he said, dad, I, you know, I, there's a point I wasn't sure I wanted to really do, do this, but now yep. I do. So, man, it's just so now it, he's on his own. But but to take it one step further, I'm heading to Cal Poly today. He asked me to come down and, and work with him. Smart and that's man. like, that's <laughs> like, wow. I It's like, OK, but, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm not going to be heavy handed with them. It's going to just listen. And it might be mostly just watching. Just think of the times. You and me and all of us, when our dads, if we were fortunate to have fathers who were in our lives, came to watch us do something that that might be all that he needs. Just I'm down there watching him, you know, and if I have a chance to 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 show something or teach something or or give him some advice, I'll do that. But but right now I'm he has exceeded everything that I've ever thought. You know, he's in a great academic institution, Cal Poly. He's doing well. Every report I get from him is is just exemplary, you know, from academics, whether even when he was in high school, uh, junior high school, high school, college, from Izzy Martinez. Everybody just says Adam's a great young man, polite, respectful, blah, blah, blah. So I, I just I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. And I was telling you this before we got on here, you know, but I watched the documentary they did on you wrestled the way the Lee Kemp story. And I never knew some of the background to your story. And a lot of times when I have people on here, I kind of go through their story. But that documentary did such a good job going from point A to point B through your life that everybody listening that wants that story should go watch the documentary. What I wanted to do is try to pick your brain a little bit, learn from you, bring some value to our audience and maybe some golden nuggets to the Lee Kem story that aren't really out there. So we'll go through some things, both wrestling, professional, um, business life. 
one thing I learned from the documentary is how much initiative you took. And you mentioned at one point how you wanted to be coached or, and I love this when you were young, buying a feed scale so you could start (laughs) checking your weight. And when I first heard that, I'm like, man, what initiative to take that and say, you know, my weight's an issue. I'm going to go buy a feed scale from a farmer. What led to you starting to take initiative and how much do you think taking initiative helped you in the success you've had? You know, it, it did a lot. And now that I'm older, you know, I'm almost 65 now. I've had a lot of time to reflect on this. And I've been yeah. talking about my life a lot, especially with the documentary and the book and everything like that. So my answer is going to be a lot different than it would have been like 10 years ago or five sure. years ago. I have to go back. And since you watch the documentary, I, I think it goes back to when I was adopted. I really do. I, uh, I've i had kids. You've had kids. You know what it's like. Um, but, but to be in foster care to your five, you know, I was kind of institutionalized and my name was Darnell Freeman, my biological mother, who I have a relationship with even now. Don't talk to her often, but I do know her. She named me Darnell. Her name was Barbara Freeman. So the point I'm making is I think the personality that I adopted because I probably was alone a lot and I'm sure I was, uh, I was in an institutionalized setting, uh, with a lot of kids. I see that narrative in the documents that came that came in my adoption papers. My my mother, my parents, Leroy and Jesse Kemp are my parents. Let's make that clear. They're 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 my parents. That's all I remember as parents. I don't remember the five years of my life, the first five years, but but um, but anyway, um, my parents, Jesse and Leroy Kemp, they named me after my dad, Leroy Senior. I read the narrative. I mean, it was a big envelope. My mother gave me one day. Said, Lee, this is you know, I was I don't know how old I was, but. Uh, in fact, I think I probably was college. She, I think she gave wow. it to me. And so I started looking through it. And I mean, it, it, because social workers, they take a lot of notes. So I had probably more notes on me That's than wild. anybody would have on their own kids. Right. Because yeah. you don't you don't take notes as when, you know, when they started to, you know, what foods they liked and just a whole narrative so that the people that adopted me would kind of know a little bit about this five year old. Sure. So I was able to read all that stuff, but I read in there that I was, I was, even though I was in this institutionalized setting, I was alone a lot. You know, I mean, I was just, yeah. cause you, you've got, you know, one or two workers with maybe, I don't know, 15 kids or whatever. So the point I'm making is I think I learned how to cope uh, with adversity. I think that's the first thing because kids, infants, they're dealing with adversity about every couple seconds because they're crying about like when a kid's crying, they want something. Right. When I was crying, no one, no one's going to come save you. Right. I mean, you know, you cry until you stop crying and then you just start to figure out that I got to figure this out. Now I'm putting that analysis to it now, but after having kids and watching children and I see kids in the mall screaming and crying and if you just, I mean, if a a kid has to figure things out, that's what they'll do. You know, yep. if they're hungry, they're going to go. They know where the refrigerator is. You know, yep. when you can walk, you're going to go open it up and start looking around. So um, so anyway, I, I think that provided the backdrop and I call it all divine. I'm a spiritual person. I think uh, my life was directed spiritually that way. First of all, to be uh, be adopted by these beautiful people. Um, they were, uh, you know, they were a black couple. They didn't have any kids. They were in their 50s. So wow, they wanted a child that was older. They didn't want an infant. And then uh, in 1968, uh, I was um, 12 uh, when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. 
uh, every city in America was going through turmoil. And I tried to bring that out in the documentary too, mm -hmm. uh, not to get heavy handed with it, but that was reality. That was history. My parents moved from Cleveland. We lived not in the inner city, but around the outskirts. Every city in America was going through upheaval, whether it was yeah. Cleveland, Detroit, whatever, Watson, California. So they moved out to Chardon, Ohio, which was 30 miles northeast of Cleveland. And, and it was predominantly white. You know, it wasn't better because it was white. It was just, it was a, it was rural. It was a farm. Yeah. My dad always wanted to have land. And I think as a young boy, I saw, I saw a black man do something to go after his dreams. Uh, all of our friends, not all of them, but a lot of, I was listening as a child to my dad's, my mom's friends. They were, they were like criticizing him for wanting to move out to this farm, you know, you know, you left the farm life in Mississippi. Why do you want to go get a farm now? Why do you want to go live around all those white people? Blah, 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 all this stuff. My dad wanted a farm, you know, and the last time I checked, there were no farms in Cleveland. It had, had nothing to do with, had nothing to do with white people. It just, he, he yep. wanted a farm. He wanted land. He wanted, and he wasn't going to farm it like to make money. He still had his job in Cleveland, but he had yep. a 30 minute commute now, you know, to go back and forth. But as a young boy, I watched this man do that. I mean, 25 acres of land is a lot of land coming from the inner, coming from Cleveland. Yeah. Yep. And uh, we had cows and pigs and chickens and my mom would go out and get the eggs from the, you know, I watched all that. Yeah. We, we butchered our own cows. Uh, and I could tell the difference in the meat that we had versus going to, you know, McDonald's or whatever. And, and so, yep. so now I'm, I'm reflecting on this now as a 65 year old man, that imprint in my brain, I know that was, that triggered me to go after something that I wanted. Yep. I saw this man do it. My mom and dad, they did it together as a team though. Not, I mentioned my dad a lot, but they were a team that my parents were married for over 50 years. So now the second part of it, that I've figured out after all these years is that it was a farm with a lot of farm work. So you're taking this kid who was just about ready to get into the city life, you know, 12, getting ready to turn 13. I'm wanting to hang out. You know, I was at that age feeling, you know, whatever. And now I got to start bailing. Hey, I got to start doing all this farm work. My dad had me out for hours doing his work. And my dad was from the old school. You may have been raised by a father like that, man. You didn't talk back. If they told you to do something, you did it. It was not like it is today. Um, I joke with my son now. I mean this all in the, my son may, may hear this, but uh, in, the, in, in, in the most respectful way. But now you ask a, a child now, a kid now that's 15, 16 to do something, they'll look at you and cock their head and decide if they're going to say, well, I'm not sure if I want to do that. You know, <laughs> my son said those exact words to me before. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I wouldn't be alive today if I talked to my father that way. <laughs> but uh but my dad said, go do this. And I did it. And so it was a lot of physical work. Little did I know that that physical work was going to translate into me becoming a state champion four years later. At the time, yeah. I had no way of knowing because we moved to Chardon in seventh grade, right when I began seventh grade. So seventh grade, eighth grade, and then ninth grade, I went off for wrestling and my body started to change. And, you know, we didn't have like, I don't have the stories of the milk and the cows at 5 a.m. and all that kind of stuff. We weren't up there. We weren't an operation to make money. It was just, but it was still a lot of work that a, that a city kid hadn't, would never touch. I can remember we had this project where we, we uh, fenced in our about 15 acres of our land. And we did it by hand, by cutting trees, digging the holes with a post hole digger, a post hole, a manual. You might remember oh, what yeah. those are. Yeah. And uh, uh, doing that. And uh, 
fencing in our whole property. It was a wow. lot of physical work that my dad and I did. And uh, I learned so much from doing that. But back then I wasn't wrestling. So I didn't really know why I was doing it. I just couldn't wait till my dad went to work. He went to work second shift. So at three o'clock he had to be at work. So in the summertime, I was up at the crack of dawn with him until about two, he'd, you know, go eat, take a nap and go to work. I couldn't wait to it to be at one o'clock. So he'd be <laughs> leave, he'd leave. Right. But anyway, that's kind of how I have to answer that because um, without all that, I wouldn't be the Lee Kemp that wrestled because I, First of all, I had a, my first coach was my dad, right? He made me do all this work. And without that, if we lived in Cleveland, there'd have been no physical work to do. Right. I might've obeyed him from a disciplinarian standpoint, but there's just too many hours of the day that you're on your own when you're in a place like Cleveland or big Detroit or big city. Yeah. For fun, we would go build tree forts and we would ride, you know, we'd jump on the back of our pigs and kid stuff they would run and we'd hang on and we'd get roughed up and cut and but it wasn't a big deal because the other kids there were rough too so i learned that toughness from those farm kids who were there uh i got into organized sports out in chardon where i don't know if i would have if i stayed in cleveland because a lot of my friends that i look back on that stayed in cleveland i don't think they did much of sports you know they didn't do anything organized so anyway a rambling answer but yeah no it, it makes sense. And I'm curious too, you know, you had a lot of highs and lows in your career, you know, from losses. And, you know, I think about losing the finals of NCAAs due to a ref's opinion, which I can't imagine if that's how they decided matches. Now three refs get together, decide the winner. Um, obviously, you know, then you won three NCAA titles and people who listen to this show a lot know that I love this question because I think so many people struggle with balance that I ask it over and over. How did you balance those highs and lows? You know, I think we have a big problem in society today where so many people get so high and they get so low and it's kind of hard to balance those highs and lows. You know, even you're seeing now, I think where people get a little bit of success and they kind of get lackadaisical, you know, it's hard to stay hungry or they get hit with adversity and they sit and cry. It's very hard to balance that. I'm curious how you balance the highs and lows in your career. The, the thing that always helped me was I, I kind of had a focus on uh, somehow releasing my mind so that I could give a good effort, you know, and I say that in the way I said it, because too often we don't put a value on someone's effort. Uh, We put the value 100% on the result. You know, like, did you get the A or did you get the win or did, you know, hey, I want to step back and hey, that was a good effort. I I grew up in the era where we got a gold star on our paper. You know, I don't know if you, I'm, you're too young to remember that, but you know, you might have a C, but the teacher put a gold star because she could see you worked hard. Like it was a math, (laughs) math test where you've got scribble all over the place. You know, you didn't get the answer, but she could tell you were sweating and you were working for it. Yeah. There's a value in working hard because, uh, or effort, which translates typically into working hard because Effort usually translates into success. I wasn't looking at the end result. Of course, I wanted to be successful, but I learned how to put my best effort in. And my dad showed me what that was. If I didn't provide a good effort, my dad made me go do it again. 
Mm-hmm. Like if I was, um, if I had the tractor and I was supposed to be cultivating some rows and my dad inspected it and said, Hey man, you know, or, or he didn't say, Hey man, back then he said, Hey, you know, son, you gotta go do that again. Cause that's yeah. not right. And I couldn't talk back. I had to go do it again. So, so whenever I was doing something with my dad, I knew I had to do a good job at it. You know, I knew it had to be my best effort because otherwise I was going to have to do it again. So I, I have to revert back to the training I had as a child, as a boy with my father. So when I started to wrestle, I put in my best effort practice every day. And there were times in practice, people wouldn't want to work out with me because they would say things to me like, Lee, this isn't a match. Come on, man. You're going so going too hard. And I would leave that person and go with someone else because to me, it was, how else am I going to get get good unless I give it my best effort? So a lot of times I would work out with my coach. Like in high school, I worked out with my coach a lot. In fact, he's got a back surgery that he's got my name on it probably from (laughs) going with me live, which he probably didn't want to, but he did because he knew that, you know, I I needed to go with someone that could challenge me. Uh, Dick Deppenbrock, he's another guy that I have to owe a lot to, but, um, but as you can see, it's, it's just putting in the effort. And I guess you can say the work, but it's not just the work. I've been around people that, that do work, you know, elbow to elbow, they put in the same amount of work, but it's not the same effort. If you know what I mean, there's a difference between effort and work. Work could just be volume. It's the same thing as working a job. You know, I remember my first job in New York city, there are people who just worked a lot of hours. Yep. You know, and and the hours was what made them feel like they were doing a good job. Oh, I worked till eight o'clock tonight, you know, whatever, nine o'clock tonight, you know, went to bed, you know, came up the next morning, did it again, then again and again. Um, that's just that's work. That's that's like volume. That's not what I'm talking about. Effort can be in a short amount of time, could be off the chart effort. And if you can start learning what the difference is, and you can learn how to put maximum effort into something. And that maximum effort may translate into a lot of hours, possibly, but but that's not the goal. The goal is learning how to give maximum effort. If you're hindered in some way because of fear, and I don't mean fear in a way that you're a weak person. I just mean you're afraid. You got to wrestle my tough. You're a little bit nervous. You got this big job interview. You got a big presentation to make. I mean, there's there's something that makes you nervous. You can't, and then you go bomb the interview. You bomb the match. You bomb because you can't perform. Yeah. That's so yeah, I was free to perform. And maybe my dad too caught me to do this because, uh, you know, I couldn't tell my dad, oh, dad, I was nervous. I bombed. No, he was going to go do it again. Yeah. You know, you're going to do it until you get it right. And so I, so there's no pressure, really. The pre- There was no, it was just like, I know how to do this. I just got to do it right. Because most of the time when you when you do something in a hurried fashion, you know, you're you're not doing it right. right. You know, if you hurry through an assignment in school, or if you just, you know, if practice starts at three, and then you have a date set for 415. You're not planning on getting better that day, because the coach may come to you, you know, at four, 405 to teach you something, but you know, at 415, you're you, the clock. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's effort. Effort means, you know, I have been in the room to eight o'clock at night. I have been at my job till eight, nine o'clock at p.m. Because I was working on something and something was due the next day. I was giving it maximum effort. I'm trying to make, trying to give you analogies to make that distinction. That was the difference in my career. I, I knew how to provide maximum effort 
without fear. And I didn't have fear because there was no judgment. When I say judgment, um, a lot of times people are afraid to do something because of peer pressure. They'll be teased. Uh, like, like when I had to wrestle Dan Gable, my teammates were laughing at me. Like, Lee, why are you taking this match seriously? You're not going to win this match. They said this in my face, you know, like wow. the day before I had to wrestle. You know, and then the day of the match, I was warming up by myself. Oh, look at that fool. I mean, this guy, he, he admitted it. I said to you, Lee, I apologize now, but I said, look at that fool over there. He thinks he's going to beat Dan Gable. You know, I mean, that was the mentality that was around me. My coaches didn't even, I mean, no one thought I was going to win the match. Yeah. All the body language around me was like I was going to the gallows to be hung. <laughs> so That's literally people like if I walked, it, it, people just parted so that so that they would get away from me. So that I would just walk through everybody. So if it was like, you know, like parting the Red Sea sort of I when I when I walked, you know, in into the gym, people would just kind of step back and let me because they didn't want to. It's almost like they saw someone that was going to get smashed. Right. So uh, that type of judgment stops people from trying and giving their maximum effort. My training that I got as a child from my dad, maybe, and my coaches, when I screwed up with my coach, Dick Deppenbrock, Richard Deppenbrock, there was no judgment. Yeah. It shocked me. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll give you a reason. There, there, there was a time where I didn't make weight once. Oh, that, that's like a no-no as a wrestler, right? I mean, I'm yeah. varsity. I was undefeated. I was a junior. I did win the state that year, but one match, I didn't make weight. I got into a bad weight cut situation. And, and it, it happened to be probably going to be my toughest match of the whole year, the dual meet season. So I think it was that pressure with I was cutting a lot of weight that year that I just made. I don't know what happened. It was fear or whatever. I just I just got to a point where I was struggling to make weight and I missed weight and I was struggling. And my coach at Lee, you know, you're not going to make it today. Just stop. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he's going to just be furious with me. And he, there was no judgment there. And I don't know if he did it purposely or if he knew exactly what he was doing, but typically I was prepared to get yelled at. I was prepared to get punished. Not that he would have kicked me off the team, but you know, he could have suspended me for a couple of minutes, you know, whatever. I, I would have accepted that, but he stood in my corner and, and uh, still looked at me like the champion he was trying to develop. And there was no judgment. He did, I don't think he said anything harsh about it. All he said was, get your weight in order for next week. And that's it. And so that practice, I, you know, the night, and so then I went through the rest of the season. I was still undefeated and I beat that kid, you know, twice after that. The first time was overtime by one point. So it was, that was how tough that match was going to be in the yeah. dual meet. And then the next time it was a, the next qualifying tournament to go to state, I beat him eight to three. So I was improving. Then I went to state and then won the state tournament. But when I was at the state tournament though, we get to Columbus and, you know, the weight, there was no, there's nothing there for us to cut weight with. And it was at the Ohio State, um, St. John's Arena. The gym was this big fuel house. It was cold in there. And I was used to having it warm where you can make cut weight. And we walked in there and it was obvious that this is going to be tough. I was about three or four over. Uh, I wasn't sweating. And my coach saw me struggling, trying to get, and there was no mats even. So you just had to run. And my coach walked by me and said, Lee, how's your weight? And I just looked at him with my eyes. He probably, he probably saw it in my eyes. I thought, uh, you know, uh, it's tough. He said, well, got to get it done. Yeah. And man, so then practice time was over. I barely sweated. I mean, it was like, 
So then we go back to the hotel and I'm just turning the heat on. I, oh man, it was just, I was so stressed because I'm thinking, oh, this now I'm not going to make weight today. And so, you know, I, I think I, there's only one other guy from my school that went down uh, to state. And of course I couldn't eat anything and my coach didn't offer anything, but typically I would be down where I could have a little something, no food, nothing. Uh, but I made it barely made it that next morning. So uh, that was a little bit of stress there, but I, I, I do remember that, but my coach trusted me and there was no judgment. There's times we judge people. I think we don't know the lasting effects that it has when you, when yeah. you, when you just blow someone out of the water, they may have it coming. Really? They, they may have it coming, but um, I wouldn't have been the same wrestler had he just, Beat, beat me up over all that and if he would have beat me up at the state tournament and if he just went off the what do you mean you're not down the way you're you know if he just started doing that i would have just freaked out i probably wouldn't have known how i but he just he trusted me he just backed away he said okay you know he says you know what you have to do and that's all he said yeah. and and he was right i had to go run <laughs> i had to go figure it out i had to go figure it out and that that's the biggest part of being a champion yeah, and one of the cool things, too, about your career to me is to watch a progression on a high level with the people around you. You know, you saw Gable in the 72 Olympics. He becomes an idol of yours. Then you mentioned the match where you beat him. Then he coached you. It seems like, especially today, it's very rare when you hit all those angles. You think of somebody like Jordan Burroughs. Think of somebody looking up to him, then beating him, then coached by him. It's very interesting. When you look back, what comes to your mind when you think of the role Dan Gable played in your life and in your career? It was the most pivotal role outside of my dad, I guess, you know, in my environment. But uh, before social media, if anybody, the young people can think back and imagine <laughs> what it was like with no social media. But in 1972, uh, I went to a camp, just like the movie my documentary brought out. I went to a, a wrestling camp like all of us is have gone to wrestling camps. It was the summer of the Olympics. Gable was there. He was the absolute, um, you know, he was everybody's role model, everybody's idol back then, but it was no social media. So I think when you have a chance to imagine something, it becomes bigger. Yeah. You know, you, there was, you, if there was a publication that came out once a quarter, you had to wait for that publication to see an article about Gable kind of a thing. So yeah. I was in this room and there he was, he was there teaching us. And he was there with Ben Peterson and John Peterson, both uh, Olympic medalists. And I watched him train and that impact that he had on me watching him train with the Petersons, uh, with Harold Nichols, who was his coach. And so I started to gain a perspective of what a champion looks like, because that was everything pointed to Gable as, as the champion. That was it. That's, that's um, that's who everybody's champion was. So then when I went back home after that camp, I just pulled from my memory what I saw Gable doing because he was, he was the, uh, the one I looked up to. And it's no different than any other sport. If you are a great jazz guitar or great guitarist, right. And you could be around Eric Clapton or somebody, right. Or as a young person, you would, you'd look at that person and go, wow. And you would just watch every move. I remember watching Gable at, and when he was eating lunch, just seeing if there was something different about this guy. That's what I was just going to ask you is like when you're looking at him and you're saying he looks like a champion, you want what were the things that you wanted to try to imitate? Well, 
I saw how serious he took practice. So maybe that's where my effort idea of effort comes from. Yeah. I listened to his conversations that he'd have. I'd be sitting close enough to where I could hear some of the conversations he was having with some of the other coaches. Uh, he sounded confident. And uh, you you take a lot away from an image. Some of it could be wrong, but sure. but someone has this image and you you fill in the gaps. Whatever is not there, you just fill it in. He yeah. looked physically strong. And, and this is the part, too, that I don't talk about a lot is when he needed a person to to drill the, te- the technique on. And I always throw this out as a question to my audience. I'd say, who do you think his drill partner was? And of course, I'm leading leading the audience. And they say, oh, yeah. probably it was you, Lee. It was me, but it wasn't by accident because we were like 200 kids in that camp. When Gable gets introduced, he walks to the center and I could tell he was getting ready to pick somebody. So I just stood up and walked over toward him. I didn't want to give anyone a chance <laughs> to have that, that opportunity to have Dan Gable teach technique on them. I thought I would learn the technique better if he was doing it on me. It's so different than if you go to a seminar, right? The ones who sit in the very front, front row, the yeah. ones who are asking all the questions, hogging all the instructor's time. I was that guy. I learned how to do that at an early age for some reason. I don't know why. I had no fear. And Gable, and I remember the first time I, you know, we were going over down position. I, you know, touched his arm and felt like I was touching a piece of steel. You know, it's just like your <laughs> mind, you build that up in your mind. And I could see his tricep looked huge. And, you know, he just looked, he just looked physically strong. His legs look strong. He just looked strong. You know, he just had this, this stern look on his face, you know, this, you know, this Clint Eastwood type of scowl, you know, you just start <laughs> yeah. making stuff up after a while, you know? And so that was my image of that's, you got to be tough like that. Yeah. And it was from the era where people, I'm not criticizing people that celebrate championships today. I think I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying that yeah. I didn't see that growing up. It wasn't part of my, if you watch Dan Gable's uh, victory in the Olympics, when he beat the Russian, after all that pressure, he just shook hands and walked off the net, walked off the net. It was no celebratory anything. That's my image of this, of being a champion, a guy, the stone face showing no emotion, uh, just being tough. And and so that's how I was. That's immediately that got stamped in my brain. So I won my state first state title after all this work. My coach said, I didn't know what to expect. I thought you were going to come torpedoing at me. <laughs> he said, I just saw you just walk, shook my hand and you walked away. He was like, it's like, what's what? He just couldn't understand my mentality. But yeah. I learned it from being around and visualizing <laughs> and watching what I thought to be what a champion would do. And, you know, again, I'm not criticizing people that do that. Gable didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's important, too, when you take something that you can resonate with or if you can learn something and you can benefit from, it's important to take that. I want to talk to, you know, it's funny, God's timing always. I see things that line up. I'm watching your documentary. I'm thinking about the Olympic boycott. And here we announce we're not going to go to Beijing. And I'm thinking, I'm like, what are the odds? I'm literally like preparing for an episode of the podcast where we're talking about about a boycott as a boycott's happening it's just nuts but i want to talk about that boycott you know i mentioned that we met at the event that kind of honored the 1980 olympic team 
And the more I dive into wrestling, the more conversations I have, the more I realize just how special that team was and really what a sacrifice it was for you. It's not a sacrifice for somebody else to say, hey, we're not going to go. It's like having an opportunity taken from you because you hit every pinnacle of success and the one you couldn't was taken from you. Talk to me about what that was like to, I mean, I know that year just from, you know, the documentary and stuff, you lose your father a couple of months after that, uh, the story of you standing on a chair where you can hear the national anthem, like talk to me about that, about that year when that got canceled. It, it was something that I haven't gotten over even to this day. Um, it, it's like a death, you know, of a loved one. Of course you go on with life. You, you, you do move on, but, but you never really, I mean, you just never really, well, I, I guess you get over it, but you, but you never forget it. Yeah. Uh, if you're healthy, which, you know, hopefully people can, you figure out ways to cope with it. And that's kind of what I was able to do. But that's to me, the because of the way I, I framed myself as an early wrestler, probably from the Gable era, I gave everything to wrestling. And that's part of the reason I had the success so quickly and so uh so intensely because I, I was willing to go to places that very few people can go. I think, I think I patterned myself so closely after Gable that why I felt like I could beat him possibly. Yeah. And we actually worked out quite a bit after that match, but so uh, to give it so much of yourself into something that was so casually just thrown away, it was really, it was, it was absolutely devastating because I formulated my my worth as a human being around being an Olympic gold medalist. And that's dangerous. That's probably not a healthy thing to do. But sometimes to go after a goal that 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 could be that difficult, you have to kind of frame it that way. Cause you know it's gonna be difficult. It's like going into battle, right? If you don't if you don't survive in battle, then you're dead, right? So you have to go into a battle feeling you're gonna have victory. Otherwise, you're not going to be around if it's an actual battle of war type of thing. That's how I framed wrestling in my mind. It was a battle that I had to win. And if I didn't win, then I was going to die, really. I mean, sort of figuratively. So my level of effort was so, so high, which is what translated into my career. And when I coach athletes, I can see that not many people can put their level of effort that high. It's just kind of hard because you're dealing with physical pain. You're dealing with the disappointment. You're dealing with everything. You know, I look at Jordan Burroughs as that type of guy who, who is going after that title of being the winning more world titles than anybody. That's, that's just unbelievable. He never lost sight of that dream. And I, you know, he's got another, he's got two more or three more years still to get one title and i like those odds with yeah no same what what is the story of you standing on the chair that they talk about the documentary well before i became a champion i would always uh, be at tournaments i'd take fourth or something and i'd always be standing on the awards stand looking up at the guy who took first and second and third and then before the award ceremony, I'd walk by the award stand and look at the different rungs of the ladder, you know, like first, second, third, you know, I'd see the number one spot. So when I was at home in my room, I was an only child. So I was in my room, my bedroom by myself. I would, I would have chairs, three chairs, and I'd stand in the middle one. And that was the one that was a little bit higher. And I would stand there and just 
feel the emotions of what it would feel like to to be getting this medal put around my neck as being the champion. You know, whether it was winning a state title in high school, getting the number one uh, award, or in the case of the Olympics, getting the gold medal put on your neck. So that was just something I did, and it made me feel good. It made me feel like, um, um, you know, and it's been documented that that kind of stuff is really good to do. You know, you're you are uh, you're role playing in your mind and your body doesn't really know the difference really. And I, I did that on a frequent basis. Yeah, that's wild. And, you know, losing your father shortly after that, going through all these battles, these dark places, what do you think it was that helped you the most? You know, wrestling, as you alluded to it, it's such a sport that you have to be a self-starter. You have to be a self-driver. Wrestling can be and often is a very lonely sport where if you're cutting weight, if you're doing these things, you know, you spend a lot of time kind of in your own head. You spend a lot of time with yourself. When you have a year like that, what is it that you think the most helps you get through it? Well, the number one thing that you have to do, and this is, I think, with any type of uh, disappointment, you have to ex- learn to accept it, accept the wrong that happened. And I couldn't do that for years. And I mean, many, many years. It, I mean, probably, and I'm still bothers me, but I'm 65 now and it still bothers me. So the point I'm making is, uh, I'll, I'll frame it this way. Um, if I, if I gave you a gift, like if you wronged me, let's just say did something, you know, uh, or I'll flip it around. If I wronged you, this will make the yeah. example better. If I wronged you, did something really horrible to you that you just said, my goodness, Lee's just a bad guy. I can't but then I came to you to apologize, Yeah. but you weren't ready to accept the apology, right? You said, man, I'm, I, I still want to be mad at you. Whose apology is it if I offer it to you and you don't accept it? Yeah. It just floats out there, right? Yeah. Now, I, I've, I got the burden off of my back because typically that's we're taught and psychologists will say, you know, when you finally ask for forgiveness, that, that allows you to kind of be free from that. But if yeah. you don't accept it, guess who has the burden now? <laughs> you, you have it. You know, you were the wrong person initially, but now you don't want to accept an apology. You just still want to be mad. That was me. I put you in the situation where I was at. Makes sense. I was just mad. I just wanted to be mad. I didn't want to accept any. I didn't want to have any acknowledgement of acceptance that that happened. I just couldn't accept it. And people go through that, whether it's uh, something that happens that they just in their mind, they say, well, I just will not accept that. I will not accept your apology. There's people that go their whole lifetime, you know, not talking, not talking to brothers, sisters, you know, whatever parents, because they're mad, they just won't accept anything. So I was that way. So look at the burden that I was carrying around. I could. So when I finally got to a place of acceptance where I fully could accept what had happened, only then was I able (laughs) to move to a different future. And that was tough to accept something, accept the wrong. And so that becomes a spiritual too, because, you know, someone's asking forgiveness, then you forgive them. You know, it's, 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 it's giving someone the latitude and the ability to be forgiven. Yeah. You know, I couldn't forgive myself. I was like, 
playing both people, you know, yeah. I couldn't, I could, in fact, I, I took it so hard to where I felt like I failed and people have to remind me, Lee, you didn't fail. You were, you couldn't go. Well, no, it, my mind, all I know is I didn't get the gold medal. So I must've right. failed. It doesn't matter how it happened. I, it just didn't happen. I, I can remember being in a room with, uh, it was a function of a wrestling function and a lot of our Olympic champions and world medals were there and all that stuff. So somebody at one point said, let's just get a picture of us, of us Olympic champions. And I, I heard that and I thought, wow, that's not me. So I just stood back and somebody saw that I was kind of standing back. They said, Lee, come on, get in the picture. And I said, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I, I didn't win the Olympics, you know, it's, it's okay. It's cool. You know, but the person that wanted to take the picture, that person only wanted Olympic champions. I could tell by the way they, I mean, it was just a photograph. They just wanted the yeah. Olympic champs in the picture, you know, probably a souvenir that they wanted to keep. And we had like Ben Peterson was there and some of the older Gable and some of the older champions and then some of the current ones. And this guy just was one of the current ones and he wanted to be in, in that cool picture. And uh, that didn't include me. So I was in that state of uh, non, not accepting that. And it bothered me. It was like, wow, it hurt me. It just made me feel like I had failed, you know? So to, to, to get to your point, you have to accept it. You have to accept, like accepting a divorce. I know people that got divorced, they couldn't accept it. Couldn't accept not being with my kids. I had to go through that. I went through this five-year period where I didn't see my kids that much. It was absolutely something that was unacceptable to me. But how do you change it? You can't change it. You know, but so you go through with this big uh, mental block, which could affect your life, could shorten your life, could give you illnesses and diseases because you're so it was a divine will of God that will open up that the, you know, whatever uh, circumstances that led to me getting my kids back and then led to Adam wrestling. I mean, it's just something I couldn't foresee at the time. Yeah. Yeah, and you're kind of an anomaly in more ways than one within the sport, I think for sure. But one aspect that makes you pretty unique, in my opinion, is that you had such a successful career, top 1%, you know, three NCAA championships, beating Dan Gable, world, winning world championships, should have been an Olympic gold medalist, and you got out of the sport. So many times we have that level of success, it's nothing but coaching jobs, camps, clinics, nothing but nothing but wrestling. And you got out. Why did you first get out of the sport? Well, um, after all those many years, I don't want this to sound negative, and I don't mean any disrespect to the people that that are going to be named now that in the story that I'm going to tell. But um, back then in the 80s, wrestling didn't have much for me. I, at the time... I got out in, in 1984. I was the most accomplished wrestler ever, you know, and right. in the definition, I, this word goat and stuff, that's just kind of weird for me to even think like that. But, but in that very definition, I, I had, I was the most accomplished guy that I'd ever wrestled from for eight years from 1982 to 1990 to when John Smith won his fourth world title. But anyway, 1982, 83, 84, I didn't get offered anything. There were no job offers. There's no, there's nothing, you know, and, so after the boycott in 80, I, I, uh, I realized I needed to do something to, um, to move my life in a different direction. So I went to graduate school. I ended up getting an MBA. So for that, from 1982, 81 and 82, I was still wrestling. I can remember going to 
the World Cup and then coming back and taking tests and going to class with sweats and going to practice and just, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, just getting my MBA was more like another trophy. I wasn't doing the same things that my my classmates were doing, like, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal or getting internships in the summer, working for companies. In the summers, I was at the World Championships. I went to the 81 World Championships. I won a bronze. I went to the 82 World Championships. I, I did win a, a gold there. In 83, I was in my last semester of grad school and I had beaten Schultz. I was number one on the ladder. Uh, the final wrestle officer were going to be in Iowa. And I remember calling the night before I had to wrestle uh, Schultz. And that, up until that time, I had never lost to Dave. I beat him nine times in a row from um, wow. 1978 to 1982. And um, I, uh, I would have, for some reason, the world championships were not going to be in the summer. That they, that one starting from that point in 1983, they went from the summer, like August at the latest to being in the, in the fall and to uh, like October. So October meant I was going to have to miss that my final semester of graduate school. So I was laboring over whether I should go and I still had to beat Dave, but I was, I was beating him. You know, I never lost to him. So I, I would have to go to Iowa to beat him to be on the team or I could just say, no, I'm just going to finish my graduate degree. And I called Dan and asked him about it. And he told me, Lee, I, you know, you can always finish school. <clears throat> You're in a unique situation here to go for another world title. You know, you'd be the most, you know, D Dan understood it. He said, you can always finish school. So I called Stan Desick, another friend. He was coaching. He was a national coach. He said the same thing. He said, Lee, you may regret this. You may give Dave that opportunity. And you may, you know, you may have given yourself a problem you don't really need going into making the 84 Olympic team. And they were exactly right. We were both right. I was, I felt a sense of accomplishment earning my MBA in 1983. I got my degree, wore the robe, got, you know, shook hands with the Dean. And now I got my MBA the whole bit, but Dave went on to win a world title, his first world title that year. And I, I never beat him after that. I, the, the, the matches to make the Olympic team, uh, he beat me. Uh, they were all criteria decisions of uh, two to two, four to four, and then he beat me four zero. So then I walked out of wrestling feeling like I had like failed, basically, even though I had all that success. The only people that reminded me that I was the most accomplished wrestler in the history of wrestling at that point were my friends. It wasn't media people. It wasn't. Uh, in, in fact, when I finished college in 1978, I had the most uh, consecutive victories. I'd beaten Gable's record. No one ever said a word about it. When Cale did it back in whenever the year 2000 something, then he got the picture with Gable. He was officially eclipsing yeah. Gable as the most, you know, the most, uh, the most consecutive victories that I lost. And I, I saw that, but it's kind of hard to talk about yourself that way. Yeah. And it was so far after the fact, anyway, I was out of wrestling, but I remember seeing the, the one article where, you know, Kale uh, Sanderson, Dan Gable were there. And I'm thinking, I looked at my records. So I, I had 105 consecutive victories. What, Gable <laughs> I had 99. <laughs> why, why? Now, I did have a tie in there. I, I asked a re, uh, sports writer and they said, well, Lee, you, you had a tie your senior year. And it was in the all-star match against Kelly Ward. And now they, they because of the athletes not wanting to risk their record in the all-star match, now it's like an exhibition, they call it. Yeah. So, so they can free up themselves to wrestle in the all-star match if they lose it's not on the record but back then you know i tied kelly ward you know and but it's still but then later on i had a friend tell me lee it's not a loss it's still a, it's still it's not a loss so 
technically there should be an asterisk there. You did have the most. So anyway, that it was that sort of thing would bother me a little bit. But then, um, so I, with my MBA, I got my first job. I'm working in um, Chicago at an advertising agency and the head coaching job at Wisconsin opens up. Just a year, I was just a year out of wrestling. It was 1985. It wasn't that long out of wrestling. Um, a former teammate of mine who was a national champion, Olympic silver medalist, he had left wrestling as well. And he had his master's and he was working in business too. But both of us, we were just two years apart. Both of us applied. He was a local Wisconsin guy, you know, from actually from the hometown of the former coaches and all that. But I wasn't even really considered. I applied, I interviewed, but I, I could tell they didn't, there was no, I was the most accomplished guy, I had an MBA. Yeah. They did not, they were not going to hire me in that, in that job. They didn't even give me That's wild. much of a consideration. So that was the ultimate. And I learned, I, they didn't know callbacks. I saw on the paper in the next couple of days that this person got the job. And, and, and I knew all those people there, you know? Yeah. And, but it was, it was just something that told me that wrestling has nothing for you. And, I, and it's probably good I didn't get the job because the job was paying like two thirds of what I was already making yeah. in business. So I turned my back on wrestling and I just walked away. I said, wrestling has nothing for me. I can't get a, can't get a head coaching job at the place where I was the most successful wrestler. I mean, even a phone call would have been nice if someone would have tried to explain to me what their logic was. Yeah. Lee, we want to hire you, but you know, we think maybe, you know, this guy might be better for whatever. I mean, whatever they would want to say. Yeah. No one said nothing. And I was a quiet guy. I wasn't the guy who was going to, you know, complain about it. You know, I just, I just moved on. So from 1984 till I went through the calamities in my life at around 2005, that's when I got back into wrestling. It's kind of like a healing process that a good yeah. dear friend of mine, John Bardis, uh, which isn't brought out that much in the documentary, which bothers me, but you know, his interview was lost for some reason. Um, and so we couldn't put frame his story in with mine. We were roommates in college, but he was the one that got me back into wrestling in 2005, 2006. He could see that I needed wrestling for my own healing because I was going through the yeah. divorce. I was estranged from my kids. He saw that that was bad for me. He knew that I needed that. And so uh, it was a good thing that uh, so I never looked back once I got back into wrestling. How do you think, you know, you owned a Ford dealership for like a decade plus. How do you think all your success in wrestling helped you on the business side? So many times I was not a very good wrestler at all, but it helped me so much in business. Now, the things you learn, what do you think? How do you think your wrestling helped your business career? Well, it, it taught me how to um, to. Uh, well, actually, you know what it was? It was more of a coaching job, really, the coaching job that I never had, because at the position that I was seeking to be the dealer, you know, the dealer principal CEO of the dealership. I had to orchestrate everyone within that environment, that work environment. Not only did I have to set the tone and set the, you know, set the path, which I did often in my career. I was a trailblazer, maybe you could say. I guess I was setting goals that no one else was doing. So I took over a dealership that that had lost money, you know, for years, and uh, no one wanted that, which is why I was able to get it. It was one of those things where I was so. Um, enthusiastic of ha finally having an opportunity 
to, to own this dealership business. It was a program I went through with Ford, a dealer training program. And so um, I, you know, maybe I was blind, naive. I just thought, you know, I could make it work. So uh, I, I jumped in and I provided that, that, that leadership, I guess you would say, uh, because when you run a company, you can't do everything. Obviously yeah. you can't, you know, there's only just really only a small amount that you actually physically do unless you hold down an actual job within the company that you run. And some people do that. Some, some, uh, some CEOs have risen up through the ranks of a company. They've just mastered certain positions and then they, they maintain that position, but they get, you know, investors and they buy the, the, the business, but they still maintain their expertise. Yeah. I didn't have any expertise in any of the functions of the dealership. I just, I just learned and my MBA helped. I just learned how to, how to be a good manager. And I had this opportunity to manage people, to manage, you know, sales, manage, you know, parts and service to manage, you know, the financing and leasing arm and then the office. And I took over a dealership that had uh, four or five employees because it, it had basically, it had gone under, but Ford had an, uh, a Ford employee there just keeping the doors open until they found an owner. Once the owner came in, then they went away. And now you had to build this thing. I had to put every penny that I had into it. I had to borrow money from people. Uh, it was a big risk to do, but, uh, you know, went from six employees to over 40 and, that's and I amazing. was there for 14 years. So, you know, I, I had done enough to probably be comfortable now in my life with this, uh, with that opportunity. But as fate would have it, you know, it all crashed and burned, you know, the divorce, the economy in 2008. Yeah. You know, when Obama took office, he bailed out the auto industry. I was a dealer at that uh, right at the end of that period, uh, 2005, seven, my divorce happened. So all that was all happening at the same time. And 2008 was when Obama bailed out the industry, but it was crashing four or five years prior to that. And I was, that was at the, that was at the end of my career going through all the stuff I was going through, uh, you know, three small kids going through this divorce. It was just, uh, the business was sliding. It was, it was, uh, so uh, the only thing that kept me, uh, I think alive was just, you know, faith, maybe, um, uh, understanding that, um, that there's a divine order to everything. And uh, just the friends in my life, like people like John, John Bartis, who, who reached out to me and, and not to criticize people that don't reach out, but true friends do reach out. You know, you may throw a lifeline out there to in a circle of many people that you have acquaintances with. And you just think, OK, well, I have, I know somebody's going to pick up that lifeline and help yeah. me. And you throw it out there and lo and behold, you've got hundreds of people around you. And no one's picking up the lifeline except maybe one or two. And that's kind of how it was. But that's how it always is. And I want to try to be that same person uh, for someone else uh, when that time comes. But John, really, and, and Mitch Hall was another guy. We were roommates in college, too. Uh, they didn't want anything in return. They just saw that if they could help, they would, you know, and, and a few others. But, but uh, John was the key guy. I mean, I lived with John for about four months. You know, people say things like, you know, I'll pray for you. And that's great. Praying is awesome. But sometimes you need a place to stay. <laughs> sometimes you need a little bit of money. Sometimes you need some help. John provided all that. You know, he said, OK, just, you know, and I guess he trusted me that I'd get back on my feet. And he just he just, you know, this this person needs a little help and I'll help him. And I've seen John do that for other people, too. I mean, people that he didn't even know that well. He 
he's had a, a massive business success, but I can see why he's got a an ability to uh, to understand where his blessings come come from. And uh, any one of us could be in a situation where we need help at certain points in in our lives. So uh, so yeah, so I, I kind of start going down that road and never never knowing that. Every, all the other things were going to happen, like make, like being the coach of the Olympic team. So I finally made it to the Olympic Games as a coach, 2008. That was a wonderful experience, actually. And that's when you're you're inducted into the Hall of Fame, then, right? Yes, and that was another experience that had I not gotten back in wrestling, that might have not have ever happened because yeah. once I got back into wrestling, I became visible again. And people started to see me at events and tournaments. And I, I coached the world team in 2006. And I coached the junior world team that David Taylor was on in 2007. And so I was visible again. I was going to the world events and uh, the committees that make those decisions. Sometimes you get seen again. And, and then I get inducted to the Hall of Fame. That's my most coveted award. I, I feel like amongst my peers, uh, and, you know, I don't I didn't have the credentials that some of the people that are in there, like Sergey Belglazov with, you know, six or seven world medals, right? <clears throat> maybe seven of them goals kind of thing. And like what Jordan Burles has seven or six and John Smith. But I'm in there with three uh, with says with a lot. Medal. Yeah. So that that I feel good about that. I two things that you kind of touched on that as we start to wind down here, you touched on both. But I'll give you a place to talk about both. The two things I want to talk about, one is, you know, when you're in jail, you're reading the Bible, you're reading Job. And I want to talk about how your faith kind of helped you through this. And the other thing to it was, you know, what advice would you give to people who you've gone through such heartache in life? You've gone through so many things. I'm curious what advice you give to people who maybe are in that place. And, you know, it's interesting because you you've both, whether it's sitting in a jail cell or whether it's having the Olympics taken away from you, you've had things happen to you where some things are just not in your control and you have to just survive at times, right? You just have to push through. And I'm curious what advice you'd give people who maybe aren't where they want to be. Um, and, and I know your faith ties into that obviously as well. You know, it goes back to acceptance. And when I read, when I was reading Job in the Bible, you know, I was a spiritual person. So I, I immediately went to that, to that account of someone that was a, by all uh, worldly accounts was a righteous man who kind of like in our own lives, you know, if we yeah. live our lives clean and we're righteous, we don't feel like we deserve to have those level of calamities. And I, I went right to that those stories in the old testament and uh, to get into the mind of job and he was mad he was uh, he didn't couldn't understand it he was um upset he cursed god he you know why me i'm i'm righteous i do all your commandments uh, you know he was just couldn't understand why this was happening to him and it finally got to a place of acceptance and but god spoke to him in those scriptures god finally after if you read that part, it's kind of, in fact, I have that highlighted and I have that in my calendar that pops up about every couple months, it'll pop up so I can read it again. I have it on, on, on repeat as an appointment. God actually speaks to uh, him, uh, Job, and he says, okay, Job, 
you've had a chance to speak. Now you listen to me, is what he says. <laughs> yeah. And he started, you may be familiar with it, but he says, yep. who laid the stars out in the sky? Who put the earth up on his axis? Who? He's just rapidly saying all these things, putting Job in his place, like, oh my gosh, you know, who, who you know, who created all this? Was it you? <laughs> you know, and the very air you breathe, uh, your, your heart, just everything. And Job just said, you know, Lord, okay, I get it. I get it. It's not my decision. It's not my life. It's the blessings you give us. If I have a day of life, I give thanks for that. If my life ends tomorrow, so be it. It's your will. It's your decision. So, so it just comes to a place of acceptance. Job couldn't accept it, but God made him accept it by like saying, hey, you listen yeah. to me. He put and, it into um, a pretty good perspective real quick. <laughs> yeah. And so I just started to understand the same thing. Well, you know, the rain falls on righteous people and unrighteous people. I'm not saying I was righteous, but I mean, yeah. uh, you know, it just things happen to everybody. And I, I had to accept that this was happening to me. And uh, uh, another thing that I think about, and this is uh not necessarily spiritual. It's like the Shawshank Redemption, the movie with Morgan Freeman. <laughs> that one scene where Morgan had a life sentence, he finally gets out on parole. He's like in his 80s. So they give him $100 and a couple nights stay in a, this hotel room. You may, I don't know if you saw the movie, yeah. but uh, they, it seems like all the, the people who were on death row that got off or life sentences that got off, they go through the same hotel room. So in that hotel room, these, uh, you know, these people, they go and they, they, they haven't been in, in real life for 50 years and they realize how different it is and they just can't cope and they hang themselves. So Morgan gets out, gets a job. It's, he's, he's like a misfit. He can't do anything. So he goes back to the hotel room. He's going to kill himself too. So he gets up on the chair. If you remember the scene to hang himself, but the rope breaks and he hits the floor and he looks up and he realizes, am I, am I going to do it again to finish the job or and, and he says, get busy living or get busy dying. That's all that that's what life boils down to. If you're yeah. not going to if, if you're not going to do it, then just get, get busy dying. Then just go jump off the cliff. Then. I hate to be sound cruel, but or or if you want to just take what's left, take the next best thing that you can do and keep living, then start doing that. Yeah. But there is no in between. And I, and I said that many times, get busy living or get busy dying. Not that I was thinking of suicide or anything, but, you know, I wanted to get back to the level of being a champion. I, I pull out the pictures of myself standing on the top of the award stand, being a world champion. I have it right, right here in my, in my office here, right on this bedroom, right on the wall there. I had that picture up and I look at it like, that's who, that's who you are. You're a world champion, man. But now what, what do world champions do? They, they get up and fight, right? They, they get up, they come back for third. They come back, and they place. And I started to, to believe like in who I was. And it's not who I really was. It's like, I'm, I'm really the same person, right? I'm still me. Doesn't matter that I'm in this place now that I don't like being in. I'm still that same person. So yeah. getting back into wrestling made me see that. John Bartis, I think, understood that. The first time I invited me to the world team trials. And I, I, hadn't been around, I had not been around wrestling for years, 10 years. The moment I walk in Vegas to the world team trials, people were like greeting me as if I was somebody important, like I was royalty almost. It felt really good. And yeah. I and I realized 
if they only knew, <laughs> if they only knew, man, I was sitting in jail not long ago. If they only knew the, how I have, I'm broke. If they only knew I had all these issues. If they only knew that I'm estranged from my family. They don't know that. So I thought to them, I'm, I'm the same person. And I said, I, I am the same person. Then go out and start acting like you're the same person. So yeah. that, that set me on a path of, uh, just taking little bitty steps on trying to just live a fulfilled life of trying to, uh, to just do what I can each day to be productive. And that's what I say to myself pretty much every morning I get up, I go, okay, what am I going to do today to be productive? That's it. That's, that's all. That's all any of us can do when I have decisions to make, try to make the best decisions you can make to be productive. Remember you have a legacy to keep. How do you how do you want your legacy to be remembered? And now I have ch my children are all grown, and a lot of the things that I do now, I think a lot about my kids. Uh, like, what are they going to think of me? Like, how are they going to remember their father? So, uh, yeah. Last thing here, because I know part of you being productive today is getting out to Cal Poly, and I don't want to keep you too much longer. Last thing though for you is you wrote a book called Winning Gold, and I could, you know, guys like you are always, I don't want to say hard to have on the podcast, but when somebody has so much, so many good stories, it's hard. You got to pick and choose what, you know, podcast is like an hour. What do you want to try to pick out and, and bring value, bring entertainment? But you have so much more to offer than just questions you can answer in a podcast. Tell me about your book. Who should get it? Who can benefit from it? What is it? give it to me. Th thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity. Um, I wanted to write a book and that was part of that uh, get busy living, get busy dying, or what can I do to be productive? I was, I didn't do it to make money really. I just wanted to get some of my thoughts out there and I wanted to do something productive. So writing a book is kind of productive. So uh, I've talked to people who wrote books and I thought, well, what's it, what's something that people could relate to very easily with Lee Kemp. And I thought it's success. So I put down parables, really success principles. There are small little uh, excerpts, one or two paragraphs. Sometimes there are quotes from other people. Oh, some of it is my out of my head, things that helped me become a champion, stories that inspired me. Yep. You know, the story of uh, Ernest Shackleton is an amazing story of survival. I have that in there and I pair, you know, condense it down to a couple pages. Uh, so you can open it up to any page. They're numbered. There's 75 individual short inspirational messages. You can open up to any page, read an insp inspirational message. Uh, there is a, there is somewhere in that book. There's a message that will speak to you. I love it. And where can people get it? Your website? Yes. You can go to leekemp.com and I've got some other items there as well. I've got a video series called your greatest season which is something that I put together that uh, it's, it's a video. It's more of a, it's not technique. It's just me talking about, it's me taking you through 16 weeks of your season. And it's designed for maybe high school. Yeah. And it's designed to like, uh, if you were having Lee Kemp in your wrestling room one day a week uh, for the whole 16 weeks of your season. So I'm talking uh, the, 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 the person watching through their whole season. Very cool. I love that. Well, 
Lee, thank you so much for taking some time hopping on the podcast today. I'm sure I'll see you around at one of these events. We'll have to grab a meal or, or get together because you got a lot more stories I want to hear. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's been fun. Thank you. Awesome. Talk soon, man. See ya. And the beat goes on.